Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, this has been pretty cool starting to hear from listeners. Yeah. I mean, up until now, the way we have heard from listeners is if they want to join Echoes of Recovery or Shout Sobriety, mm-hmm. which is great, right? That's that's someone jumping into the pool with both feet, mm-hmm. which we love. But it's kind of cool having this new way to connect with listeners where they can just send us an email if they've got a question that they want us to address on the podcast. So I, I know you haven't, I haven't forwarded you any of those emails yet. So no, you haven't. I'm keeping all the coolness to myself so far, but I will share. Good. Good. Spur of the moment. No warning. Like you like it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's really fun to start to hear from people. I mean, we, we get feedback in a general sense, but this, this, Hey, you know, you guys have never talked about this. I'm wondering about this, that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. has been really fun. And so we'll figure out how we're going to, to address those questions, whether it's one big, long, you know, episode where we try to get it, knock out as many as possible, or if we're going to just sprinkle some in, but so if, or a little of both, good idea. Yeah. Excellent. A little variety. Yeah. Well, so if, if you don't know what the heck I'm talking about, listener, um, the, the concept is, Hey, shoot us an email. If there's something we have not addressed, that is is something you're curious about in your alcoholic relationship. Maybe it's something that we have experienced at the hands of alcohol. Um, and we would be happy to address it. We won't read your name. We won't read your email address. We will, I, I guess I, this is the first time I've mentioned this. I should have mentioned this earlier. Totally anonymous question. We will not out anyone on the podcast. So yeah, we will just reference the the question and give you our unprofessional opinion. Just a reminder, we are not therapists or psychologists. This isn't a, uh, you know, a dial-in psychology. We're not Fraser Crane here, mm-hmm. um, we'll, but we'll give you our take uh, in our experience. And so, if you want to be part of that process, if you want to ask something or or suggest a topic that we have not covered, uh, you can send an email to me at matt at sober and unashamed dot com. Those three words just all running together: matt at sober and unashamed dot com. So today, Cherry, we're going to talk about no longer pretending. Mm. This is a kind of transformational topic, in my opinion. I think one of the best ways to to describe it, just to dive into it so that listeners can figure out what the heck we're talking about, is to talk about the state of our, the physical state of upkeep of our house. And I know sometimes I know you get up, you get offended when I talk about it this way. Yeah. Cause I make it sound like we're slobs now. Yeah. 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 We're not slobs, but we're a lot closer to slobs than we were when I was drinking. Yeah. So when, when I was drinking, we both, you and I both went to extra efforts to make things look like there was nothing to see here. Like everything was in order from the, the yard, you know, was always neatly kept nicely trimmed and mowed and bushes trimmed and they were you couldn't find a weed in our yard if you tried um to the inside of the house everything everything had its place everything was put away and that was for two reasons really one of them was 
again, trying to have that appearance of there's nothing to see here. So when we'd have friends or neighbors pop over and, and come inside, they would see that everything was, was put away and well-kept and they wouldn't wonder, Oh, I wonder if there's a bunch of drinking going on in this house <laughs> because there was like a, a messy mess. house equates that, but well, yeah. in my head, it sure did. Yeah. For, that's what I thought too. Yeah. Well, and also I didn't want to have to deal with like any sort of lashing out that you might be like, Oh, well, look at the, the family room. You know, it's a mess. That's where the kids play and they had their TV and it's a mess. You're a messy housekeeper. You're a terrible mother. You're not teaching them to clean up after themselves. Those sort of things. I so. would never say mean things like that to you. I know it was all in my head. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, but that, that was the second point I was going to make. Not only was it to keep up appearances for outsiders, but you know, you were protecting yourself from me and there was something real for you to protect yourself from because I had, in addition to depression and anxiety that I was medicating with alcohol, I had a lot of, you know, kind of everything's got its place and everything needs to be in its place. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, paranoia. I don't know what to put the right way to say that is. I cared about that stuff and I don't care anymore. There are places throughout our house where just piles of crap can go and it doesn't bother me, mm-hmm. which is nice for me. That's a huge blessing in long-term sobriety is all of that need for everything to be in its place has gone away. Yeah. So not piles of crap, but piles of things that don't currently have a home or as I like to say, in progress, piles of stuff, they are in progress items. You, if you're listening, you might be able to tell who most of the piles belong to based on the sensitivity about what I'm calling them. This year, it's not crap. It's good stuff. That's good stuff. Craft projects and notebooks and broken watches that need a battery and just stuff. Just Mm -hmm. life, right? Yeah. 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 Well, it doesn't bother either of us anymore. So if you were to come to our house now versus years ago when I was drinking, you would be like, whoa, you might, you might walk in now and be like, whoa, something's going on here. I'm worried about these two. You guys live here. Piles of stuff. As my neighbor lovingly said, your house is lived in. It is. It's very lived in. So six people in a tiny house. A lot of life going on. Yeah. But so that is a way in which we are no longer pretending. And we are blessed to not be alone in this conversation. We have invited Adam and Karen to join us. Welcome, Adam and Karen. Thanks for being here. Hi. Hey, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks for having me. You guys weren't sure if that was a prompt to say something or not, but you mm-hmm. you get you jumped in. Proud of you guys. <laughs> so um we invited Karen and Adam because we had a conversation about, about this topic, about no longer pretending. And they both had some good stuff to say about that transition that you make. And that, uh, you know, one thing I want to say, I'm talking about how our house is different with me and long-term sobriety. The transition actually takes place slowly over time. You start kind of peeling back the layers of the onion and you start refusing to hide the secrets because they're not serving you and they're not serving necessarily your loved one, uh, who is the person who's the drinker. And, um, the more you expose the truth, the better you feel and really the better, more long-term benefits there are for the relationship. Oh, that is the truth. I mean, I had experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. So the letting it out helped you 
and overall helped, you know, exposing the truth. Uh, it didn't feel like it in the moment, but it helped me long-term as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Karen, let's, let's start with you. Do you have an example of where, you know, no longer pretending, no longer hiding the truth, um, started to help you heal and started potentially to help your husband? How, how did this go for you when you started to no longer pretend? I've got many stories. (laughs) I love it. Um, so I call it the look good. It's like that you can't give up that image, right? And so I, and I do think that was a lot of the problem with my husband getting sober because he didn't want to admit that he'd lost control. And I, and I think all of it was ad- admitting, hey, this is what's really going on here. And um, I like to look good too. You know, I was raised to be the good one, look good, do it right. Um, And it was really hard for me to admit that you can do everything right and still get it wrong, you know? And so I thought if I was a good wife and a good mother and a good person that I'd get that happily ever after. Um, A lot of my work roles, family roles, I looked good. I would dress right, um, show up, have the right answer, but I didn't have any of that (laughs) in addiction. No right answers. I wasn't looking good. We weren't looking good. Um, And this, this is just part of it. We have a neighbor across the street that doesn't like us very much. We have these most beautiful trees in the world. They're maples, they glow, okay? But they shed a lot of leaves and Really, I think better for the environment is to let them fall, mulch them, leave them around the garden. He didn't like that because he's a lawn guy. So, but there were many, many years, especially my husband scurried to clean them all up. But now I'm like, he should be saying, thank you. These are gorgeous trees. He gets to look at them all year. Anyway, I think it's not taking everything so seriously and so personally. I, I hit my toe on a coffee table a few weeks back. And my son had sent me Crocs as a joke. He lives in Colorado where everyone's cool. So um, he makes fun of Kansas City where he grew up because we all wear Crocs here. So he sent me these most flamboyant rainbow Crocs. Well, my toe was recovering and I couldn't wear anything else. So I had to wear these out in public. I can't tell you that people have stopped me so many times to compliment me on those shoes. So he got it right. (laughs) I love that. Hey, we live in Colorado and I got to tell you, we see a lot of Crocs around here. Yeah, I think you'd be I think you'd be pretty cool even here. Yeah, Yeah, they have definitely made the comeback, especially for the high schoolers. But I have a similar, I have a pair that are sandals and I call them, they're very colorful croc sandals. And I call them embarrass my teenagers at the water park shoes because my children would be like, oh my gosh, those are so horrible. But I get stopped all the time. And I'm like, you know, your feet are the foundation. And if you are not feeling good, yeah, you know, then you're not going to act good and it's going to be painful and you're just covering up. Do you feel like the, uh, now you're an outgoing human being and, and I, I know that that has always, it has to have always been the case. At least you come across as an outgoing human being. I guess I don't want to make assumptions about what's going on inside your head, but 
is that freedom to wear those and feel comfortable in them and get those comments? Is that something that has come with the confidence of, um, you know, telling your story and not being afraid or so in the past, you would not have been comfortable going out like that because you're hiding everything, right? I don't think I was hiding everything, but I got shut down a lot in the process. And I would say I was used to be more shy, which I know mm-hmm. people don't believe that for some reason, but I just love people. And I think we all should be free to express ourselves. So um, when I started telling my story and found out I wasn't that unusual, that was huge. It was really mm-hmm. huge because um, I just... I don't know. You want to believe the good in people and you get kind of gaslit and waylaid and it really hurts your self-esteem. And especially if you view yourself as being smart and educated and even coming from an alcoholic family, you don't think you're going to end up in that again. And so then when you do, it's like, I wasn't that smart. What the hell was I thinking? You know, it's like giving up the fantasy and thinking, oh, wait a minute. Now I got to deal with reality, even if nobody else does. But not everybody liked that change. I had to learn to say no, (laughs) set Mm -hmm. boundaries. All of that was really hard work, totally against my conditioning. So, but yeah, I feel a lot freer. And I had to let go of fitting in and people liking me a lot more. Well, and and that, that is so difficult to do when you've got, as you said, when you've got, you're getting shut down a lot. You know, what's that statistic that, you know, one bad thing has to be counteracted by six good things, you know, because people just kind of live in the negative if there's negative present. And so when you're being <laughs> shut down, you know, in an, in a relationship that involves alcohol and we know how cruel that can be. It certainly was cruel on our end. Um, I said, nasty things to Sherry having the confidence that's why I think this is so applicable. You're not talking specifically about something that happened directly related to alcohol. You're talking about all the tangents, right? Mm -hmm. All the ways it affects your life, not feeling comfortable to wear colorful Crocs out in public. I get that. I, you know, and I think a lot of our (laughs) listeners will get that. I think if you talk to someone that's never experienced this, they'd be like, what are you talking? How do these, these two things relate? But there is such a relationship just having the confidence to be yourself and not care what other people think that comes from, like you said, all that work you did to set those boundaries, um, define what you would and would not accept, and then be comfortable in your own skin and not worry about, um, getting shut down because that, that kind of gaslighting is some of the hardest to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in all of it, we're trying to control the uncontrollable because even if I wore the perfect shoes and the perfect whatever doesn't mean everybody's going to think I look great. I mean, it's just silliness in a lot of ways. Yeah. But there's something about you. We've known you for a long time now and you have an air about you now, an air of confidence and it's not arrogance and it's not know-it-allness. I mean, you're constantly sharing resources with us. So you're proving that you're willing to go out there and find out what other people have to say. It's not like you're, you, it, there's nothing arrogant about it. It's, but, but but you feel strong in your convictions and, and that comes across and that is only going to come across as the result of all the work that you've done and the healing and the repair. So it's really cool to witness. Thank you. I get excited when I see you coming on a call. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I think part I guess of the that's reason, a good thing. <laughs> well, it's a great thing. And you are comfortable um, 
you know, talking and interjecting. So I don't have to be the only one doing that. So I love that, Karen. You're, you're very good in that regard. Adam, do you have uh, any wildly colorful Crocs that you wear out in public? Because that's the topic, you know. If you don't, I'm sorry. We don't have yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to have to jump off then. Um, uh, <laughs> otherwise, I would not be able to do that um, in the fact that uh, I couldn't embarrass my son. He is, he is the one that you can't get out of Crocs. Um, okay. Walmart actually had a sale the other day. Uh, they were clearing out some. And there were men's sizes, and he's 12, uh, and not quite there yet. But uh, he's like, Dad, you got to get me these. You got to get me these. You got to get me these. I'm like, really? Really, son? It, it's it's November. You don't need Crocs right now. No, no, I've got to have them. Okay, fine. And then so he's prepared. Yeah, well, he's prepared for his adulthood Crocs. That's great. Right, exactly. They're, they're too big, so he goes clopping around the house, walking in them, because they're like two sizes too big for him. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, he'll be ready. We like to hear that. Preparation is key. He knows what's cool. Yeah, he knows what's cool. <laughs> he can hang out with me, and they do have fur-lined Crocs. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. So, so Adam, talk about uh, ways in which you know you have made that transition, or at least started to make that transition away from the pretending that we do in active addiction. Um, and inactive addiction of a loved one to, you know, kind of telling it like it is. How has that been for you? I think the, the biggest thing, the biggest change that, that I feel like comes to mind right now is uh, the, the, the script that I would run. Um, you know, I, I would get looked at and, and be like, well, what's wrong? You're acting some kind of way. You're doing this. And my response was always, I'm fine. I'm not acting like anything. Everything's fine. You know, basically just try to shut it down. And, uh, I began to realize and, and, and cope with the fact that, you know, I, I, I wasn't fine. I was, I was really being hypersensitive and aware of, of how, of what she had going on and how her behavior was and, and allowing, you know, the self doubt to settle into my head and, and, and just rest on me over choices that, that I didn't have anything to do with. Um, and I think, you know, one of the biggest things in, in, in trying to do that and, and helping myself is admitting and, and being able to look at her if she said something along the lines of what's wrong. Okay. Well, this is what's wrong. You know, I'm not going to sit here and be the, you know, stoic wall that I was raised to think we're all supposed to be. Uh, for everyone, uh, especially for, for your wife, for your loved ones. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you what's going on. You know, it may be something along the lines of, I just haven't had any caffeine today. So I'm feeling tired, sluggish, and got a headache. Um, you know, or it's, well, look, we've had this, this, and this go on, and I'm just not really in a good place right this second. And, and I need either some time to think about it, and process it, or we need a moment to where, you know, the kids are quiet and doing something else and we can just talk it out for a minute. Um, that, that's been, you know, that, that's, that's a huge thing for, for me. Um, another thing talking about the, the maple trees, um, you know, uh, I kind of did not follow some of the same paths of, the house and the yard and everything has to look immaculate. I, I threw all my energy in trying to 
ignore the effects that this situation had on our children. So I was, if I was home, I was 100% into anything and everything that they were doing. Um, to the point to where, you know, like I said, my son's 12 years old. Uh, he has, uh, to, to my chagrin, very much fallen into the YouTube hole. And, uh, you know, all he wants to do is go back into his room and, and watch YouTube on the laptop. It's like, no, I want you out here with the family. And I'm having to remember and remind myself, you know, and not pretend that at 12 years old, I wasn't doing the same thing. I was going into my room and playing on the Game Boy or, or, or whatever that I could get away from my, my mom, you know, and do. Uh, so, you know, I got to, I'm, it's, it's coping with remembering that some of the things that he's going through are natural and are part of, you know, life. And, uh, that, you know, I don't have to pretend like everything's fine with us, uh, with, with me and the kids, you know, uh, our, our girl's very young. So she's, she's just crawl right up into daddy's lap and she's good. But, uh, you know, I can, I don't have to pretend that some of these things haven't affected, you know, my son and he knows that we can work through it and it will take time. Uh, I think he's still pretending, uh, to, to a certain extent of what affects him and what doesn't, but again, that, that's going to come with communication and time, I guess. You, you bring up a really good point. Um, and one that I have struggled with as well. How much of the isolating that you see your kids doing, how much of that is because they're kids, right? They're normal, you know, teens and preteens and that's age appropriate. And how much of it is because they have experienced this, uh, the trauma and chaos of alcoholism. And then, you know, I would throw onto that one other thing. They, I mean, you mentioned, yeah, you know, we played video games when we were kids, but the, the accessibility and the variety has been increased so dramatically that, you know, there's a lot of societal concern. And I share that concern about technology addiction and especially, you know, my kids are, are obviously related to me. So they, uh, <laughs> they are genetically predisposed to addiction. And so, so there's like these three components. Is my kid isolating and are they on their, their device because they're a normal kid? Or are they isolating and on their device because of what they've experienced through my drinking? Or are they on their device because they're starting to develop an addiction themselves? And um, it's really complicated and, and difficult to navigate. So I, I'm glad you brought that. I'm glad I'm not the only one that wonders sometimes, you know, like, is this okay? Like, do I need to just be okay with this or do I need to freak out about it? Yeah, it is. It is challenging to try to decipher what is what. And it's like out of your choices, I think it's a little bit of one and three for some of our kids, maybe totally number two would have been for one of our kids. Yeah. You know, the, addiction and, the, the addiction and the escaping. I mean, maybe it wasn't yeah. YouTube, but just being by themselves away from the family and, um, you know, you and me and yeah. attention and finding, you know, calm in their own bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly make a complicated 
thing to decipher when uh, when we've been through relationships like this. Yes, it's a very complicated household, but you're right, Adam. Like you said, it'll just take some time and working through and you can't have all the answers right now, but also allowing a little bit of space for that, for them to, for him to, you know, have that time, yeah. I think is really good. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to follow up on, Adam, you talked about the stoic wall. And you made me think about how, you know, in our society, we we are not raised to be expressive of our emotions when we are guys. And so, not at all. but, but in having gotten to know you over these last few months, you're good at it, man. You're, you're, you are to a place where you're willing to talk about how you're feeling and share in that and resonate with other people. And I think that's to your huge benefit. What was that transition like? Because it sounds like you were raised to stuff it down, um, but but you have found the will to talk about stuff. Um, was that hard for you? And how do you feel having kind of gotten gotten over that hump? Um, honestly, I think the the biggest the biggest thing that happened for me was about uh, about six years ago, my dad died suddenly in an accident. Um. He was doing something that he had done. He was he was cutting down a tree for uh, for uh, a cousin of ours. Um, something that he had done literally thousands of times because I grew up with a wood with a wood burning heater. Um, so that's okay. how we stayed warm, <laughs> you know, in the winter. Is uh, we cut down trees and split wood, and uh, uh, so there was there was a lot of times to where. Uh, you know, growing up, yeah, I would open up to people and, you know, and, and sometimes you get shut down or you get burned by that and, and you go, okay, nope, that wall just stays up. But uh, the, the biggest, the biggest time that that changed for me, I have to say is when I lost my father. Uh, I, I was not able to process it the way that uh, a lot of people would have thought um, because that was my wife's first major dip into uh, drinking the Medicaid. Uh, the The death of my father hit her real hard too. So here I am. I've got to be there for her. You know, I lost my father, but I've, somebody's got to be there for my wife. Um. So uh, I guess not processing that or dealing with that in some ways for a delayed point of time, um, really just kind of open that up. Uh, I remember it was a year to the day. Uh, in fact, a year to the hour, uh, after my father died, I am in a movie theater with my wife watching, uh, guardians of the galaxy two and, uh, Michael Rooker who grew up not far from where, uh, I grew up and live played a, what ended up being a blue alien version of my dad. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, um, spoilers for a several year old movie, uh, the character kind of sacrifices himself for his, his son figure. And, um, you know, set a line along the lines of, uh, you know, I'm proud of you, boy. And uh, I bawled in the theater. I mean, you know, my wife's just sitting there handing me Kleenex from the from the popcorn over and over and over again. 
And uh, ever since then, I cannot just shut down the way that I used to. Um, I have to deal with it. I have to, I have to process it. You know, I call it growth in that way. Um, but it, it's also realizing that that's what I've got to do for my family. And I don't want, you know, you talk about, you know, how we were raised and there are a lot of great things about the way I was raised, but there are a lot of things that I don't want my son to experience. So it's trying to live that example for him. Um, my dad always, uh, well, not always, but my dad would look at me sometimes and say, I didn't always do the best by you. And I looked and I'd tell him, I said, dad, you know, even the times that, uh, you made a mistake or you did something wrong because he was a drinker for a long time. Uh, that's the reason why my parents got divorced. I said, even when you did those things that weren't the best, you showed me what not to do. So, um, you know, it's just trying to, to pass that along to, uh, to the next generation, I guess. That sounds way more stuffy than it meant to be. No, I, I think it's a perfect example. You know, th this sounds corny, but I, I like to twist that old saying that what goes up must come down into what goes down must come up because it's just a matter of how much we experience in life. You know, th there's a reason that a lot of people in our groups and that we communicate with are in a, a similar age range. Stuff piles up, right? And, and, you know, when you're in your young 20s, in many cases, you haven't been through enough that you can't continue to stuff it down. You, you've got enough pressure on it that you can hold it back. But you, you reach this kind of midlife area and there's just too much that's piled up. And then you have something major happen, like the loss of your father, and it won't stay down anymore. And yeah. you find yourself in that situation. You found yourself in, in the movie theater. Um, and But, you know, those turning point moments there's such a relief. I, I experience, you know, I haven't lost my, my father or anyone, you know, sig you know, significantly close to me. So I haven't had that experience, but I've had the experience of it, you know, you, the lid pops off and then it's out there and you know, you can't, you no longer want to, or can't keep the lid on things like that in the future. And it's, it's such a relief. So I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, Karen, one of the things that Adam talked about, um, what he said, you know, he, he, in polite conversation, you say to somebody, oh, I'm fine. They ask, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. You know, one of the real benefits in recovery, if you're exploring and you're trying and you're learning is finding other people who are not fine, just like you're not fine. And you, you get into a place where you're comfortable telling people you're not fine. One of the things I really admire about you, Karen, is you have found lots of people, not just our echoes of recovery group, but you, you have made a point of, um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you all of the names of all the different groups you're in, but, but you find support in a variety of different places. Is that part of the reason that you do that is because there's benefit in finding other people who are not fine and won't just tell you that they're fine? I think I'm a helper. I think okay. I was born a helper. And I think I, especially during, and, and a lot of women are, I mean, we are basically conditioned to 
be the safe place and the nurturer. And sometimes you get taken advantage of for that. So that's where the Boundary Boss and Terry Cole's book really helped me a lot. But I think it's kind of that thing where if you can help one other person, you know, if you can just help one other person and, and maybe not, you know, but it's just, I think because alcoholism is huge and it's so encouraged in our society um, and the results of the addiction are not heavily promoted. It's not like cigarettes with the warning label or even pharmaceuticals. It's like on every, every television show or movie, drink up, drink up, drink up, you'll be fine. And I just think there are many of us who are affected and a lot of times we're affected more deeply than we know. And I was really interested as well in the generational trauma because this is something that gets passed on generation to generation. Even if it skips a generation, sometimes those behaviors continue. The perfectionism, the looking good, the um, over-responsible people, more like me, that sacrifice themselves to make sure everybody else is okay. So that stuff goes on. And I just think, I, I love people. <laughs> Yeah. And I think well, we're all in the process of recovery. Yeah, from something or another. Like you know. And there's just a huge benefit when we own that and admit it and aren't trying to hide from it. Not trying to be that stoic wall. Yeah. I mean, like I involved myself with a group of people that necessarily were not <clears throat> coming from a place of being in a in a marriage that had alcoholism. Um and we all had like our own wounds and it was great when Matt finally opened up and um, sent out an email to everybody in his contacts, contacts to say, you know, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I'm an alcoholic. And so then I could really kind of, that door was open because I had always like kind of kept it from this group of people in my ladies Bible study, but you know, it was pretty obvious something was going on, yeah. you know, like, Cause I'm highly emotional or, you know, but really? then it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then like, you know, but it was really nice because then I felt like I had a lot more support and it, again, they weren't, they weren't people that necessarily came from alcoholic marriages, but there was alcoholism involved and maybe their parental or extended family. And then just some of those family dynamics of, of, the past generations of like, you have to be stoic. You have to shove it down. You, you know, aren't allowed to share your feelings. You know, it was a whole gamut of things that everybody was running through with marital strife and family strife, but yeah, it was really great when you finally opened that door. So I could be really honest with my group that I was a part of for seven years. Yeah. Well, there's so many benefits to this, this no longer pretending and, and owning and living your own truth. And a lot of it is therapeutic. A lot of it is working through the tough spots and uh, having those honest conversations and making progress. But it also gets to the point, kind of, you know, I've been thinking about this story, Karen, since, since you mentioned the Crocs a while ago, the colorful Crocs and how you didn't care about going out in public. We were blessed this summer, this past summer, to go on kind of a once in a lifetime uh, beach vacation and the, the plate. And we were there with, with my parents and my sister and her family. So it was, it was kind of all of my side of the family. It was really, really fun. Our four kids were there. My sister's three kids were there and 
one of the, the things, when I think back to that vacation, the thing that comes to the top of the list of things that I enjoyed about it was how, how free I felt to do whatever I wanted to do in the moment. This, this place we stayed had a, had had a water park and then there was the beach and there were a couple of different pools. There was uh, sand volleyball. There was all this stuff. And I just acted like a kid. I just went where I wanted to go and I ate when I wanted to eat. And I, I, you know, went down the water slide. Sometimes I couldn't even get, you know, our kids are older. My sister's kids are older. They're teenagers and, and beyond. We've got some twenties now. And uh, sometimes I couldn't even get anyone to go down the water slides with me. So I would just go down the water slides by myself. And when <laughs> I compare that to what that vacation would have been like when I was drinking, oh, God. first of all, you would have been, been had to be tethered to the pool bar because you would have floated away. You would have been so drunk it, with it was an all inclusive. So yeah, I would so have, that, yeah, I would have had a lot I would have been drink. praying for a drowning probably at one point. But so. when I, during the periods and there would have been a lot of periods, if we're being honest, there would have been a lot of periods where I was sober enough to care what others were thinking. Mm -hmm. I would have been so concerned about, Oh, you know, did anyone notice that I'm having another one when no one else is? And, and, you know, am I not, you know, how am I acting? Am I, am I acting like, am I slurring my words? Am I walking funny? Like that would have just dominated my thought process. So there's no way I would have gone on water slides by myself without the kids. Yeah. You would have been way too intense at volleyball and embarrassed your nephew and, and three older kids that played the, on your team. And yeah. And, and I would have otherwise just wanted to lay low and try to fly mm -hmm. under the radar. And I would have wasted this gift, this once in a lifetime kind of vacation opportunity and all the memories would be bad. Not to mention the whisper fights you and I probably would have had at night in the room. Um, so, so yeah, the, the benefits to no longer pretending are not just therapeutic and um, they're not just to help us make it over the hump. Once we're well over the hump, it's just, I mean, it's, it's just such a blessing. Freeing. I mean, I, I would come back to our little family area once in a while and be like, God, I know I look like a fool. I'm just running around like a child. My, you know, the other adults in the family are reading a book and, you know, enjoying the sun. And I'm like, God, why can't I act mature like that? But you were enjoying yourself. Oh, I was enjoying that was the, the hell thing. out of myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that allows me to act that way and just do whatever I want and behave however I feel like behaving is the fact that, you know, for you and I, Sherry, we are no longer, and this goes both ways. We're no longer walking on eggshells around each other. Um, one of the problems of, you know, Adam used the word, I'm fine. I'm just fine. You know, one of the problems with that being the full extent of the communication in a marriage is that you're trying to read between the lines all the time. You're trying to gauge each other's mood. And obviously this person's irritated. How can I keep from setting them off? And you and I spent a lot of time walking on eggshells around each other. And like I said, it, it goes both ways. There were times, even though I was a drinker and it was my alcohol that was causing the problems, I could tell you were upset. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to get into the heart of it or not, depending on the situation. And so maybe I just watch what I say and try to navigate without causing uh, further distress. So walking on eggshells was a two-way street. Adam, I want to throw this to you. I'm curious, as you have increasingly stopped pretending, and when your wife asks what's up, you actually tell her, do you feel a relief 
from that not walking on eggshells stuff? Um, is, is that, is that still a part of how you navigate life and are you able to get away from it to some extent? What's that been like for you? Uh, yeah, I think, I think we're getting away from it, uh, somewhat, uh, you know, of course we're, uh, eight months in on this process, uh, continually right now. Um, you know, I've been, been trying to be on the process for, you know, maybe more like a year and a half, but, uh, we still have some, some touchy subjects, uh, money and spending of money is still a difficult subject for us, but for the most part, um, yes, uh, I can say opening up and saying, you know, Hey, look, this is, this is what's going on or, or trying to talk about it, uh, takes a lot of that internal pressure off. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot less weight on the shoulders when I can just say, no, this is what, it, this is what I think it is. Um, I also, because she is doing well in a lot of ways and because we can talk about that and talk about our successes with that, um, there's a lot less of that look and energy that I'm giving off that, that you were just talking about to where she can tell something's bothering me. She can tell something's wrong. So there's a lot less of the, are you okay? or what's wrong questions being asked. Um, you know, it may even be more so of a, you know, looking at me and going just straight out saying something's bothering. And again, for the most part, you know, I think the last time that she said that was, you know, my, my response was, well, I got up, we got, I got this going. I'm realizing it's, you know, 11 o'clock and I haven't really eaten anything and I haven't had any caffeine. So I'm just a little irritable right now. Let me get a little bite and, and things will be fine. And it's, it, it's almost even less the, uh, you know, not even pretending to myself anymore because a lot of times the saying I'm fine was pretending as much for me as it was for anybody else. So taking a moment and realizing and thinking about how, no, no, no. What, what is going on with me? What, what is my, my internal workings right now? And, and it could be, oh, wait, you know, I'm hungry. All right. That's an easy fix. That's something that, that's easy to do. So that, that does take a lot of, a lot of that eggshell and pressure out of the room. Well, I, I totally relate to the, I'm fine and lying to yourself and not being honest with yourself, whether it's just that self-evaluation, am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Am I just a little tired? You know, is there something outside of the house that's bothering me and I'm bringing it in or, you know, a conversation that I had with a family member that's not Matt, like, how is that affecting me? Because we've also, as the spouse or partner of an alcoholic, we don't know what's going to throw them off. So we don't really want to say anything. So we have to kind of stuff it down and lie to ourselves. Like I remember one of our most terrible arguments that we had was about my sister and her relationship with her husband. I was like, how is that? Deflecting. Alcoholics (laughs) never deflect. (laughs) I mean, and to the point where I like yelled at someone the next day on the phone (laughs) because you forgot something. 
And I like, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And I apologize to that person later on. And I know that every fence cannot be mended. And that was one that couldn't be mended, but I was like, so worked up and so put out. And because it had been a terrible argument, I was like, this is my sister's relationship, not ours. I can be sad. I can have opinions, but no alcohol was involved. So therefore you could not have opinions. And then it came back to me about, you know, how my, messed up my family was. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to look at, you know, anything but myself. So yeah. You and your family was an easy target because we were, you know, both had intimate knowledge of what was going on. And so right. whether it was messed up or not, I would twist it into being messed up just to deflect yeah. from what was going on with us. Yeah. Sure. And I still find that I have a really hard time even kind of self-evaluating like what's really bothering me or feeling confident enough to speak to you about what something is, is bothering me at times. It's getting a lot better. And most of the time I'm very good at it. Um, but just cause you just don't know what's going to trigger some sort of argument or get thrown back in your face later. If you admitted that you weren't fine to your alcoholic partner and in their early sobriety, you also don't want to like tempt that sobriety. You don't want to like trigger anything. So we are again, still walking on eggshells because you don't want anything to be set off or cause a relapse or cause an argument or make them self doubt their sobriety. So it's Well, and I'm glad Adam that you brought in the physiology piece and how, you know, we can do things to put ourselves in a biologically better state. That's the kind of thing that I would have poo pooed back when I was a drinker and even an early sprite, you, you need some caffeine. What do you mean? You need to eat something like whatever, just deal with it. But I didn't understand then the relationship. I mean, when, when you're living with someone who is abusing alcohol, your nervous system is just fried. You are constantly in high alert in fight or flight mode uh, in a way that is supposed to be reserved for once in a great while. In the case of an emergency, you just live there all the time because you never know what's going to come around the next corner. And so taking care of yourself uh, with regard to what you eat, you know, getting some free time, getting out into nature, exercising, all, all of these things that we give lip service to and we say, yeah, that's important. But then we don't necessarily actually practice they're really important to actually practice. So the fact that you are aware of that and, and, you know, take, you know, know that there are times when, you know, we're not going to have this conversation right now because there's no way I can navigate it. Well, let me get to a state where I'm, I'm better prepared mm -hmm. from a physiological and biological point of view. And then, then we'll, then we'll give this difficult conversation a try. That's really important. And it's the kind of thing that me as a drinker, would have glossed right over and, and been like, well, what also, are you talking about? Also as a drinker, you needed your immediate fix. Yeah. Like you needed to get in there oh, and yeah. deal with it right away. Patience was not part of. Because you wanted to know what it was about. You couldn't right. stand to like be held off, yeah. whether it was for the benefit of the relationship or not. And you also needed to impart your um, opinion and knowledge and get the fix. So then you can just be done with it. So you can be ready to drink that night or continue yeah, to drink. Absolutely. Karen, you've been on this recovery journey for quite some time now. And I'm curious how taking this approach of no longer pre pre pretending and facing things and dealing with them, 
How does that help you? Because, you know, just because you're in recovery for a long time doesn't make everything perfect. You still experience hiccups. There are still, you know, two steps forward and one step back, things like that. So you still in your relationship and in, in, in your own work, you're still gonna hit some, some roadblocks. How does your commitment to being honest and dealing with things in a straightforward way help you when you hit those roadblocks? Um, I think I had to learn the skill of focusing on me, which for to a lot of people, I don't know, maybe that's obvious, but for me, um, being raised in an alcoholic family, being a mom, and then having an alcoholic spouse, you're kind of always looking at someone else's response. And I think what that does is it takes your power away from being you. Okay, so when I look at what I need to work on or how I can see it differently, it actually takes my power back. When I started expressing my truth to my recovering spouse, he was like, oh, things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. And I'm like, no, they're not because I'm expressing my truth. And I think you start seeing that. Um, it, it gives people permission to be themselves more. You know, it's like we get to choose. It's not um, I, I can have I can be in a bad mood. I can say I'm cranky. I didn't sleep. I don't have to be the super strong woman. I don't have to pretend when I don't feel like her. There are still some days I feel like her, but I don't have to be that. I can be the one who says, I'm reading a book. I'm laying on the couch. I'm watching my show. <laughs> I don't have to make everybody be okay. Um, I think I'm real intuitive and I would try and solve people's problems before they ask for help a lot of times. That doesn't work. It just does not work. So I had to learn to wait to be asked and to ask myself. That was a big thing about. Yeah. You know, you said it at the beginning that at the beginning of that comment that maybe it's obvious that you should prioritize yourself. I would argue the opposite. I think what you have experienced is very, very, very much the norm, whether people are just naturally nurturers and they're constantly looking out for other people in their lives and who can they help, or it's a result of childhood experiences that make them want to, you know, walk on those eggshells and not, and, and make, Hey, how's everybody else doing? Let me make sure everybody else is okay. And completely ignoring themselves. I think that's super common. And I, one of the things I love the most about you is that you are constantly providing reminders, not just to Sherry and I, but to others about how important it is to focus on yourself. And it's so counterintuitive when we, when you focus on yourself, you're actually helping other people. I know I, I hate the cliche, right? The oxygen mask, put it on yourself first before you help others. But you, you just, there's an air about you. There's a confidence. There's a, there's a, a you know, a productivity about you, you, you make progress when you focus on yourself, when you're focusing on other people, you get bogged down. Do you, do you feel less stuck when you focus on yourself than when you focus on uh, the well-being of everyone around you? I think the process I use is, am I going to feel resentful if I do this? Okay. I mean, because I think that sometimes I thought, well, I'm going to help this person and they're going to be so grateful or whatever. And that's not always the case. And so you're living for the response. And I think I just started saying, 
it's called, I think, self-inquiry. I don't know what you asked exactly, but I, I'll ask myself now instead of, well, do I want to do that? Or, you know, is this something somebody else should be doing for themselves? Because I didn't know that my helping was not helping and that people needed to learn from their own consequences sometimes, or, you know, they had to, to ask permission and I had to agree instead of just assuming. I mean, communication, it's all wackadoo. You know, we think, well, they should know. I didn't tell them, but they should know. <laughs> it's kind of crazy making. I don't know. No, you answered my question. Just you hit the nail right on the head. You make me think of this situation that I was in once with uh, someone that attended our church who decided to get sober after he had heard my story a little bit. And he, he shared that with me. He said, you know, gosh, after hearing you talk, I've decided to get sober too. It turns out he had, uh, he had other mental health crises that were going on in the background and, uh, but I, I felt partially responsible when he got sober and I, I felt like it was, it was my job to stay connected to this person and help him, whatever the, the case may be. And to make a long story short, he had kind of a meltdown and, and I went and it happened during the church service one, one Sunday. And I went to a restaurant around the corner with him to try to help him afterwards. And there was a gentleman in our church who is a psychologist uh, been practicing for years and years and years. And he, he came into the restaurant about an hour after me and this other gentleman had been there. And he, he said, he, he pretended like it was a coincidence and he sat down with us for a minute. And then he asked if I'd step away from the table with him. And we stepped around the corner and he said, Matt, you can't help him. There's nothing you can do to help him. I just want you to know, don't waste your whole day. There's nothing you can do to help him. And you, you make me think of that when you talk about if you're not, if the person's not ready, if the person hasn't felt enough pain to want to make that change themselves, it, you can talk to your purple and it's not going to help. And I just remember how matter of factly this guy with all this experience was about it. You know, he, he didn't soft pedal it, or maybe if you try this, or maybe if you try that, or this is unlikely. He said, there's nothing you can do, you know, walk away. And yeah, it was a full mental breakdown. And I did not walk away. I tried anyway. And turns out that guy was hundred percent right. <laughs> you wasted it. I wasted a lot of time. Yeah. But, 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 you know, there's nothing wrong. With, I always say it's nothing wrong with trying, but when you have that experience, you real, it made you realize going forward that there are things that are just beyond your control oh, yeah. or beyond your ability to help because there is so much real true <laughs> mental illness behind addiction. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and knowing and that is a, it, sorry, a relief. It's a relief, isn't it, Karen, to know that you can't change people because I, I, I still experience frustration when I see somebody going down a path that, you know, gosh, I've got enough. I've been doing this long enough that I know that's not going to work, but I also know I can't talk them out of it. Isn't there relief to relinquish the control over somebody else's behavior? Do you feel that Karen? I do, but it, at first it was a muscle that was unused. Okay. Yes. And I had to do a lot of this. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I believing? And put the power back where I had control. And um, that thing about taking care of yourself physically and mentally and sleeping and eating. So we had a recent relapse where my husband wasn't doing that. So we had a behavioral relapse and that can happen. I mean, we think somehow we're superstars of everything, but there are times you can't help a person. And I think, well, when did I learn my lesson? Oh, when I learned it. 
Okay. So could I have learned yeah. earlier? Maybe, maybe I could have before this Mack truck ran over me, but I've been warned, you know, so did I, have I learned it now? Yeah. Is it a weight off me? Yeah. Yeah. But do I still have a part of me that just wants everybody to be okay? I'd be lying if I said no. You know, yeah. I think if you care about people and you have empathy. You want them to make good choices, but they don't learn until they're ready. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot to that. We have to learn these things the hard way in when it comes to addiction and recovery. No question about that. Adam, go ahead. I was going to say, I had read something and, and I tried to impart it to, to a lot of people, but a lot of times my wife, uh, life is a teacher and it will keep teaching us the same lesson <laughs> until we learn it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. No question. One of the things I'm curious about with your experience, Adam, a lot of what you have shared is about, you know, owning and admitting and no longer pretending that you're fine in relation with your wife when, when you two are communicating. What has it been like for you to step out of that tight circle and find other people who also are not fine and are willing to express that. Have you found relief in that or um, does it make you feel justified in, in your own uh, experiences? What's it been like for you to find other people who are not fine? When, when I first got, I, I'm, I'm not involved in a bunch of different groups like Karen is, um, you know, I, I commend her for that. Uh, and, and maybe I'll get to that point where I can. But when I got involved with, with y'all and with Echoes, I lost 20 pounds. Um, I, I mean, it was, it was just 20 pounds just lifted off of me to where even though, you know, my situation is different for a lot of different reasons, um, I'm in a rarity in the fact that uh, it, seems, it seems I'm in a rarity at least because, you know, I'm a husband versus a, versus a wife, uh, and dealing with this. Um, but to see so many things, so many themes repeated, uh, amongst all of us and, and, and other people, uh, was just eye-opening and, and, and unburdening for lack of a better term. Uh, so yes, that is, you know, being able to admit and, and not pretend that, that I'm fine and see other people say, yeah, no, you're, you're not. And none of us are. And, uh, that's okay. Was, was, was a, a great thing. Um, you know, I don't, I keep a, a tight circle personally. Um, you know, I pretty much work, come home, sleep, work, uh, you know, I try to find some, some downtime sometimes, but, uh, you know, I've got a handful of friends that are as close as family. And the fact that, you know, I can, I can look at them sometimes and go, Hey, you know what? Today just sucked. <laughs> um, there, there's no other way to say it today. Just sucked. And they're like, Oh yeah, no. Um, yeah, sure did. Bet it did. Um, here's, here's five memes to, to at least make you laugh about something for a minute. Um, you know, that kind of thing is, is great. Um, instead of, again, just, just looking at people who you tell them you care about and they tell you that you care, that they care about you and saying, no, no, everything's, it's, it's all good. It's, it's cool. It's great. 
I'm fantastic. Um, you know, or even having one of those friends who looks at you when you try to say it and say, no, you're not. But you know, when you want to talk about it, you'll talk about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you use that term and I keep coming back to it, but dropping that stoic wall is such a benefit. And you are a rarity in, in a really, really good way in not, not the situation that you're in. I mean, yes, I believe statistically that there are more wives of alcoholic men than there are husbands of alcoholic women, but it's, it's not a 10 to one ratio. I mean, there's a lot of people in your situation out there, but there are very few that are willing and, and frankly able to address the situation and have that, those emotional conversations. And as one of those unique men who's comfortable talking about his emotions, I got to tell you, it's all upside. I'm sure I make other people uncomfortable sometimes, but I don't really care. And uh, <laughs> I don't. That's a good thing. And, uh, and, and I know, I mean, you've got, you know, it, it, it's, it's a rarity, but it's a blessing. And so I'm so glad that you, uh, you have found the relief that exists in, in being able to talk about this stuff and that that has been your experience. That's been really great. So can I comment on that? I think that's I would amazing. love you to. Oh, good. <laughs> I think that the world needs that more than anything. The therapists that we're working with now, because we all end up playing these roles, patriarchal programming or whatever it sure. is, but those, just because somebody is a certain gender doesn't mean they're suited to that role, especially if a lot of it isn't honest. I've got two adult sons that are really pretty good at managing emotions and expressing them. One of them really <laughs> that we were going to visit a crack guy, did, you know, um, said he, he wasn't ready for us to come visit because he just lost his dear pet, which he's honoring his own grief. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy. So, I mean, it's just to see that happening. And my other son, many of his friends have gone to a therapist because they wanted to, not because they were forced to, or so you see the change. And I think it's just so sad that we all are encouraged not to express our feelings and to honor them. That's how you heal them. You feel them. I mean, it's so common sense. Well, I, you know, I think the societal change that has moved maybe the most rapidly in my lifetime is what's going on right now in, in mental health. And I don't know that it's going to impact our generation as quickly as we would like, or as thoroughly as we would like, but certainly the, the, the kids these days, but the, the teens in the twenties, the way they're willing to talk about mental health and get help is just, it's, it's a blessing for us all. Right. And it gives it's me hope blessing. that, yeah, it gives, gives me hope for the direction that we're all well, going. They're encouraged to do it, which is such a different thing. I try to imagine my dad sitting around in a circle going, well, this is what you know, and I'm thinking, I don't know if that could have happened. God bless him, you know, but yeah. for the generation that you come from, you do what you think is normal. And I wanted to comment too about having the smaller circle. That is so freeing to have a close group of friends where you can just, they all know my story. It's like this was, and it takes so much energy to keep the secret stuffed. Oh my God. So it's so freeing to be able to just have a friend who really does, you know, my feet hurt. It sucks today, whatever it is. I'm in a bad mood. Maybe we should get together tomorrow. 
Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to own one of my emotions right now. Karen, you made me think of it when you talked about the maple tree and the leaves and just being... Uh-oh thinking of what a blessing the tree is. Uh, This was my leaf raking weekend I had set aside weeks ago on the calendar. And we are at uh, 13 degrees and a couple inches of snow on the ground. So it does not look like that's happening. And I'm okay with it. I don't care. (laughs) I hope those leaves slowly rot and mulch and become nutrients for the grass next year. And I don't care what our neighbors think when they blow over to their yard in a week. I don't give a rip. They have lawn keepers that blow their with their gas powered yeah, all people. Our neighbors all people their leaves in our yard now. Yeah. Like just put I, it on I, their I yard. Know they don't care. I, I know that neighbor. <laughs> yeah. But we fight we always pray for the um southeastern wind. So it'll just go and pass. That's right. But I'm gonna tell you, and the snow is good. Yeah. And it's not that we don't do anything. It's just that it's not compulsive. We do try and mulch, but man, and not all the trees. They're not all our leaves. Not all yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah, this situation would have worked me up uh, back in oh, my days of perfectionism. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually looking, maybe I'll, instead of raking leaves, I'll watch a movie. Nothing wrong with that. My sister is a gardener, and she says that ruins the environment. You need the insects, you need the mulch, you need yeah. to, you know, the lawns are not as important. And like six times our water supply goes to keeping a lawn versus... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know my statistics. I know it's a lot. (laughs) Well, I'm ready to be done with it all. That's for sure. (laughs) Thank you both for coming on and and sharing a part of your story. Um, This is really great. I think the value of no longer pretending cannot be overstated. Uh, Even when you're not sure if it's your story or uh, if you have the right to share your story, find those small circles, uh, get the get the message out so that you can reap the benefit and feel the relief. And so thank you guys for encouraging people. One last little tiny encouragement. Um, You know, if you want to take that baby step toward no longer pretending, shoot us an email, matt at sober and unashamed.com. Ask us a question about our experience or something that we have yet to address on the podcast. And we'll see if we can work it into a future episode. Adam and Karen, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.